welcome to the podcast. I'm Corey. I'm Natalie. And we are the Art History Babes. And we are so, so, so excited to be joined by Blair Imani. Hello, Blair. Hello, distinguished Art History Babe podcast listeners and hosts. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for that regal title. You just just placed on us. Distinguished. I like that. I just sat up a little bit taller. (laughs) Well, I think that because I'm a historian, people always expect me to speak that way. So I'm happy to fulfill the, Mm -hmm. you know, the fantasy. 100%. Yeah, no, we love it. Yeah, love it. Love it. Blair, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Tell the Art History Babes listeners who you are. For sure. So, well, I just said for sure. So I guess I should tell everybody that I'm from Southern California. Mm-hmm. I went to school in Louisiana, Louisiana State University, Go Tigers. And I terrorized the history department there. They have a great art history department as well, or art history major as well. So I am a grassroots organizer who's retired. I also used to work at Planned Parenthood and Crisis Communications. And My retirement also involves writing books and being a historian and being an influencer now, which is really fun. I do this intersectional anti-racism approach to telling history because, you know, just like the United States was segregated for such a long time and still is to many degrees, the way that we tell history is very segregated. So through the initiative America Did What, which is um, hosted by myself and Kate Robards, we're educating people on different subject matter, one piece at a time, just kind of breaking down this like myth of the, you know, like perfect American ideal. Because, Mm -hmm. you know, America wants to be a perfect union. It wants to be a place that's equal for everyone, but we're a long way off. So that's what I do currently. But I'm just like a relaxed person. But again, because I'm a historian, people think that I speak like David Attenborough and I like (laughs) live in an estate and, you know, have 15 degrees. Uh, I have my undergrad degree, but a lot of my studies were done through Miss Sadie Roberts Joseph, who passed a year ago. And so she informs so much of my work, especially as it relates to Reconstruction, the Great Migration, Civil Rights Movement, etc. But it's funny because I love polling people. Oh, let me close the door. I'm getting feedback from my dog. I'll pause there one <laughs> sec. I miss dogs. Stop it. Oh my goodness. Okay, sorry. No I'm worries. Back. We're a, we're a pup friendly podcast for yeah, sure. <laughs> we love pets. You're all good. And I think the most fun part about me is that I only have my undergrad degree and not saying only like it's something lesser than. But a lot of people think that historians have to have like 15 degrees and have spent, you know, 10 years in an ancient vault getting, you know, like <laughs> emphysema, working to like <laughs> uncover artifacts. And that's important work. But I'm a public historian and I really like the fact that so much of what I do is trying to take the granular texts and the academia and make it tangible to people because most folks in the United States read at a fifth grade level. So I try to make sure that all of my lessons come to that level as well, because you can expand upon it from there. And you shouldn't have to use what my dad calls $10 words in order to get a point across. Definitely. I mean, that's a message we can very much get behind. That's very, very similar to kind of how we approach this podcast, like wanting to make this information accessible to people. And yeah, and I actually have both of your books here. And I thank you. Of course, I, I love, love, love the way they're written, because I was gonna say the same thing. (laughs) It is so accessible, and yet so 
information packed at the same time. And I have always been a huge believer in the idea that like, if you can't teach a child something, you can't teach anyone something. So like making something accessible to younger audiences, like you said, like maybe uh, younger reading levels. And it is still at the same time, it's the same information. It's the same complicated ideas, but it's just in a way that people can understand and not feel alienated from. And I think that's just like such an important thing for educators and speaking as, you know, an art historian myself, like I personally would love to see much more of a push in that direction in terms of how history texts and art history texts are written for sure. Me too, because it's like it can be done so much easier. And I think that I've gotten some shade from folks who feel like like I had one person try to quote unquote compliment me by saying, you know, the illustrations truly betray the depth that you delve into. And I was just like, screw you, dude. Like they're trying to say that like, wow, because it's illustrated, it can't be like intellectually rigorous or because it's easy to read, it can't be intellectually rigorous. Like I'd rather somebody be able to breeze through this and learn more than they did in an entire, you know, four-year degree program then feel like it was a, a mountain to climb. And yeah. an example of this is kind of how some historians of African-American history speak about the difference between the term race riot and massacre. Mm -hmm. And in my text, I explain it in like two sentences. I was like, okay, well, you know, race riot is an archaic term that makes it seem as though it was like violent on multiple sides of an equation, whereas a massacre really underlines the fact that it's a power dynamic and it honors what took place. And I'm reading these academic articles about it. And it's like, why why was I able to say <laughs> something in two sentences that you required like 16 paragraphs? Yes, yes exactly. Elitism, man. We definitely experienced our fair share <laughs> in grad school. And I think I just got so used to, as a art historian, historian, just knowing that most of the texts that I'm going to be reading are pretty dry and being like, I I'm going to find the <laughs> content interesting. There are going to be moments that I'm going to enjoy this but like a lot of it you're just gonna have to get through it and so to sit down with your book and like you said I was able to fly through it because I just enjoy the way you wrote so much and I could understand it so quickly and that not in a bad way like it was amazing thank you, like, you that's know, what you want when you're reading and it's funny because I think as people tell me this it's always like folks who are like in a good way and I'm like no like the best thing you can tell an author I think is that your book was easy to read but yeah. because mm -hmm. we put such an emphasis on like academia and elitism like you were saying it's like people feel like it's bad to say oh no this was easy to read and I enjoyed reading it and I mm -hmm like flew through it I'm like no great that's exactly what I wanted because yeah I think that's just you know we retain it better and I've always struggled with reading comprehension I've gotten better at in my adulthood and like thank goodness because I'm a historian and we have to remember a lot of shit but like growing up reading comprehension like that part on standardized tests I was horrible at it and I hated the experience of even when I was doing leisurely reading having to read the same sentence four times in order to like grasp what it said or having to stop and go to a thesaurus. And, you know, even as I learn new words, like I said, reify, which is to make something abstract, more concrete, reify. And I was like, hey, I just learned this word like two weeks ago, y'all. And it was funny because, you know, it's probably like the most academic word that I've used in a minute. But I, I think it's exciting too to let other folks know that, hey, I'm a published author and I'm still learning stuff because that's 
the case for most of us. Yes, totally. And also just speaking back to what you said about that person talking about like the illustrations or something, I kind of want to counter that point because like it's been scientifically proven, like it's actually kind of basic neuroscience that like if you have more things to attach a concept to, meaning like if you have visual aids to attach a mm-hmm. concept to, you're going to have better recall. So having no images in, in addition to words, you're creating more neural connections in your brain and so you're better able to recall the information (laughs) so like images is like a really valuable learning tool like for anyone I will be repeating that ad infinitum which means (laughs) forever for those who don't speak Latin I believe no that's really important and I think it's been the case for me like if I can look at something and really like grasp it in another way like there's a reason why infographics are so effective on the internet and it's because of those neural connections that you're talking about so like just the elitism like no for a book to be a real book that's important it can't have any pictures like all right let's pretend for real But yeah, like I, I remember when I was TAing in grad school, there was lots of correcting papers. And I remember just telling my students because even undergraduate students, like they want to, you know, sound really intelligent using like really big words. Throw in a thus and maybe a hence, a wence if you're feeling frisky. (laughs) Wence, oh, wence is good. (laughs) A little whereas, you know, a little whereas if you're, if you're feeling nasty. (laughs) (laughs) And, and there's this desire from, from students at a collegiate level to bulk up their papers with uh, words like that. And all I would tell my students is like, no, clarity, like clarity is what we all want. Mm -hmm. As like a TA who has to read a ton of papers, I just want clear ideas. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that is just, yeah, it's just such a a simple thing, but like elitism likes to gloss over that, that like reading should be about clarity. Like you're trying to convey a message. And I feel like any teacher would want that, you know? And it's so funny because, like, how would I be remotely insulted if you were to tell me that I effectively got my point across? Yeah. Like, that's the goal. (laughs) Like, I think that there are a lot of writers, though, that write to intentionally be difficult to read and write to, you know, be opaque Mm -hmm. in their messaging instead of being transparent in what they're trying to get across. And so I think that's really where it comes from is like, so basically now when people tell me something like that, it's like, oh, you know, this is so easy to read. Like you should really write it, you know, differently or like kind of trying to shade me for that. I'm like, well, my goal as an educator is to educate. Why would I make it harder to do that? And then the person goes, oh, wait, never mind. (laughs) It rolls it back a little bit. Yeah. (laughs) Well, so while we're on the subject of your books, do you mind talking about them a little bit about each of them? Oh my gosh, twist my arm. No, okay. Okay. (laughs) So my first book is called Modern History, and it's stories of women and non-binary people rewriting history, and it's illustrated by Monique Lay. And the reason why I focus on women and non-binary people is because I, when I was going through the book and we had to have like the subtitle for it, it was going to be like women rewriting history. But then I also knew that folks I had featured were also non-binary folks or even non-binary women. And so I made sure to include that even if it was like, oh, no, the title has to be slightly longer because you want to honor people's identities first and foremost. Mm -hmm. And then that one was really wild because if it wasn't for LeVar Burton of reading Rainbow, Star Trek, and Roots fame, I would not be an author because he shouted me out on Twitter and like was the reason I was able to get a literary agent and get my book proposal different places. So he's a gift. Also, he like helped me be an enthusiastic reader when I was like in third grade still. Yes. 
really cute full circle stuff right there. Yeah, reading Rainbow Man. What a treasure for real. So wholesome. And so then like a month before my first book came out, 10 Speed Press, who's my publisher, reached out and they were like, hey, we'd love to have a book to feature for the 50th anniversary of Black History Month. And I was like, well, it's not totally the 50th anniversary because it's just the 50th anniversary of the official designation. And they were like, see, and that's why you're perfect to write it anyway. (laughs) So (laughs) I wanted to uplift the work that I had done in undergrad, which is around the Great Migration, because, you know, there are great foundational texts about the Great Migration, but I wanted to really bring it to folks who are not in academy, folks who are, you know, still like growing up and living their lives, because I wanted to fill the gaps in knowledge like if you only learn the way that I learned black history in school which was like okay slavery we disappear then we show back up with Martin Luther King and get free like that's not that's not even a good plot for anything you know much less the actual story of a people I teamed up with Rochelle Baker and Patrice Cullors who did the foreword and is the co-founder of Black Lives Matter to really illustrate and bring to life these historical moments because Like I said, if we continue to operate on the understanding that, you know, these histories happen in separate universes and continue to segregate the way we're educating about these histories, then we're going to continue to be befuddled every time, you know, there's a crisis of, of human rights. Like, you know, if you weren't aware that gay veterans, black veterans and black gay veterans were systematically prevented from accessing veteran benefits because of these things called blue discharge papers, then you might be a little confused why like LGBTQ people and black folks are so pissed off that we don't have rights because you will not have the context. So it's those types of Mm -hmm. things. And so making our way home, the great migration and the black American dream, it's illustrated and like for I think it's like 1899 retail, like you'll learn more than you would if you bought the equivalent amount of academic articles for much more money. So I'm really dedicated to it being like cost effective in just like in a field where people think that Malcolm X was the leader of the Black Panther Party and that Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated during the I Have a Dream speech. Like, I really just want people to read the book. Like, I don't care how you get it, but please, because... The historical inaccuracies are too damn high. You know, it's ridiculous. For sure, for sure. No, it is ridiculous. And you put all the effort into writing this book that we've been raving about how easy it is to read. And it's very clear, very concise. I think the illustrations are beautiful. I personally love the illustrations. So, bro can have his opinion. <laughs> and I so I was telling Corey that I was really proud of myself because I found both of your books at a local bookstore and I was able to do pickup option with, you know, all, everything safe. And then Love it. one of them was back ordered. So they basically were like, so we'll let you know when it's here and then you can come get them both. And I was like, all right. So I have a digital version right here, which is still great and easy to access and lovely. But I'm excited to get the hard copy because I feel like it's just going to be so beautiful on my bookshelf as well. Yeah, I'm really excited about it because... Well, I'm excited because I wrote it, but also (laughs) because I just kept thinking about somebody who picks up these books on accident. Because like in my first book, Modern History, like I'm talking about really complex subject matter and it's all written in this approachable way that is also age appropriate because, you know, it's illustrated people might think it's for younger audiences and it is. But I talk about things like sex work and Mm -hmm. like talking about homelessness and disproportionate rates of homelessness within different communities and putting that in context or like as I talk about Carmen Perez I talk about how she grew up in a neighborhood that was violent and usually people will say that and leave it there but as a Latina woman 
saying that a Latina grew up in a violent neighborhood makes people automatically put to their minds that, oh, Latinos are violent. And that's like not the case. So I made sure to expand on that and be like, okay, because of the war on drugs, and this is what the war on drugs was, and this is what it did to communities like Carmen's. Mm -hmm. But I just love the idea of somebody picking it up, thinking, oh, this will be great for my friend's niece. And then your friend's niece gets like, you know, super informed about the the state of the world. (laughs) That's exciting for me. Yeah. Yeah. And then with Making Our Way Home, I've seen the same thing where I am very much upfront about the fact that if like a queer affirming history book, there's a gay couple Mm -hmm. on the front cover, my uncle Lester and a partner that we decided to give him because he deserves, you know, to be able to have that reality, even though he couldn't have it in life. Mm -hmm. And somebody bought the book because it was like, okay, this will be great for my bookshelf for Black History Month didn't even register the queer affirmation and then wrote me an angry email being like, why is this book so gay? And I was like, well, <laughs> I'm also so gay. So, <laughs> uh, people. Can you actually, I remember, I think I saw on like an IG live or something, you talking about the cover of the book. And obviously we talk about images and visual material a lot. Can you go a little bit more into the story of the cover of the book? Because I just love it so much. Absolutely. So when you do a book, usually you have the cover in mind somewhat early in the process. The cover and like the title of the book were so delayed. I was freaking out. Like I sent my editor, Caitlin Ketchum, like just 20 different titles. I was just like, please, one of these work. None of them worked. Like it was just such a headache. And then I didn't even have like a concept for a cover in mind because there are some like really like iconographic images of the Great Migration, like black folks holding suitcases and like packing up a car and, you know, heading north or people who were like in share fields contrasted with folks in urban areas. And I didn't want to like duplicate that. I wanted it to be innovative, but I also wanted it to be personal. And so it just so happened that I was in Oakland, California, visiting my uncle. And I was like, you know, like just chilling, having dinner with them. And I walked into his study and he has this beautiful picture that has just been around my family forever of my great aunt and great uncle, Carmen and Clarence, walking the streets of Harlem in the 1940s. And I was like, that's the picture. And so I remixed it a little bit. I put, so I I kept my uncle and Auntie Carmen in the forefront. Then closer to the spine in a green suit, you have my uncle Lester. And he looks very kind of like, you know, he's not partnered with the person that he's walking with, which in the, the original photo was a woman. And that's partially because, you know, Uncle Lester had to be closeted his whole life because of how gay people still are treated. But especially when he was, you know, growing up and how it had negatively affected him in terms of being gay in the military and then being denied veterans benefits. So I thought it would be really beautiful to add a partner to Uncle Lester to kind of honor his truth and his legacy. And then on the other side, kind of his bookends, you have myself and my partner, Keith. And that was really beautiful because then we got to kind of connect the two facets of like history as it was with my auntie and uncle Carmen, history as it could have been with uncle Lester and his partner, and then, you know, history as it affects today with myself and my partner. So that was really cool. It's really beautiful. It's so beautiful. (laughs) I love, I love that. I love that imagery. Sorry, now I'm just looking at it. Hello. (laughs) Okay, so as you said in the beginning, like you're a historian and now kind of an influencer, basically, can you maybe talk a little bit more about how your roles as like historian and activist meets this like social media space? Oh, for sure. So, you know, folks really denigrate the social media atmosphere and that's because people say it can be shallow and it's, you know, so capitalistic, blah, blah, blah. So are all forms of media. And it's not to dismiss those valid critiques, but to really, 
you know, impress upon people the fact that social media is just yet another tool of being able to get effective messages across. And so my cousin, Tay Hansberry, who's actually the grandniece of Lorraine Hansberry, and no, I'm not related to Lorraine Hansberry, but that would be dope. <laughs> she is an influencer and has been for quite a few years using Instagram and blogging. And so I grew up kind of, you know, seeing her develop her platform as I was going to college and like figuring out what I wanted to do in the world. So I always knew kind of how this could work. And like, and just the fact that LeVar Burton shouted me out, and that was part of the reason why I'm an author, like these things on social media are huge. It's just another way for folks to get their points across. And actually, instead of just reiterating this, I really encourage everyone to get the book by Feminista Jones called Reclaiming Our Space, which really highlights and connects the Black liberation movements and Black women's leadership of it to the current social media age. So everyone should go get that. But for myself, I've just been using this kind of as another tool. And it's been funny to do as an influencer because, you know, I, I photograph well, I love public speaking, so I can also do that through social media. And I never want to like dilute the message. So I did a partnership with Maybelline for Pride. And it was so funny because I was just doing so many dad jokes. I was like, now while I do my foundation, let's talk about the foundations of the Say Her Name movement <laughs> and the origin of personality in Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw. And then I was like, doing the eyeshadows and the eyeshadows were named things like rally and tempt. And I was like, rally, as in we must rally for our human rights and tempt, as in we cannot give in to <laughs> capitalist temptation. It was really fun. And so social media is really great for me because, you know, I can really scrutinize the brands that I'm working with. So for example, I'm doing a partnership with Johnson & Johnson soon, and it's uh, around, mm. LGBT, you know, rights. But I just did a briefing call with them this morning at the time of this recording, and they were giving me a briefing on everything from like how they've shown up for the LGBTQ community in the past, like before marriage equality to today. And that's huge for me because why would I partner with a company that, you know, the difference between like rainbow washing and actually doing work like, okay, yay, hooray, you did like a rainbow, you know, shoe collection, but you have no gay people and you've never don't honor trans people and trans folks can't get health care through the insurance you provide, you know, like those things are important. So I think that yeah. when folks are only experiencing, like if you only listen to like Sky News or Fox News and you think that's all of media, you probably not want to watch, you know, cable. But then in the same way, if you look at influencers and you're only following folks who like are selling you diet pills and stuff, then you also will have a negative view. But just like newspapers were a tool to criminalize and demonize groups like the Black Panther Party, the Black Panther Party also had their own media so that they could put it into their own hands. So I'm always about trying to innovate and maybe get folks to come in. Maybe they follow me because my page is highly aesthetic and maybe they stick around because they learned a thing or two. Yes. Yeah. I, I love that. I love that so much. This is definitely a topic that's come up for us a number of times because I guess we're kind of like micro influencers. You know, we have a decent sized little following and in trying to incorporate that into our like mission as like art historians is something that some people love and are so about using social media in these new ways that can like intersect with education and then other people I guess just the that it feels like there's a, a consistent critique and sometimes it's a little bit more like hate like of of using social media too much like people really like to get like upset by how much people use social media and, and like make comments like that person, you know, shares too much on social media or that person uses social media 
too much. And it's an interesting thing to kind of come to terms with because I totally agree, you know, there are these like capitalist elements to it that are fair critiques that we need to be considering. But at the same time, I fully consider Instagram to be a tool as well as all social media platforms. And I mean, like Instagram is how we found out about you, like, because you posted something and like now we're having this awesome conversation and making this connection. And now I own your books and now, you know, and it's like, that was, that was all Instagram. But it's so funny to me too, because like, you know, from an art history perspective, I remember learning about like the ancient Mesopotamians and like the ancient Sumerian texts and stuff and how like in ancient cuneiform, the same critiques of people like being like, man, this new generation with their, you know, papyrus scrolls. And it's like, it's hilarious. But I think about that every time I hear someone critique a new form of communication, like, oh, Twitter's not real enough. And it's like, okay. But even as people critique things like memes, like there's a difference between memifying something because you're being disrespectful mm-hmm. and then seeing somebody like during the Sudanese uprising trying to convey complex political systems through the form of memes so that people could understand it across a variety of dialects and languages. That's huge, you know, but you have to understand the fact that not just y'all, but like the audience and everyone, we just have to understand the fact that people who are accustomed to a certain form of communication will become threatened for whatever reason, but largely because they feel they're losing power when new forms of communications arise. And that is something that's going to be steadfast because humans, you know, our technology may change, but fundamentally we do not. We have the same motivations. We have the same reptilian brain kind of controlling our every urge and using the rest of our brain to justify those urges. You know, so we have to really confront the fact that, you know, there are going to be people who are saying things like, way back then like oh man these cave paintings are so you know performative you know and it, it, it's just like the parallels to today are endless you know they're not everybody during the italian renaissance was on board with michelangelo's art style with impressionism the same thing yeah. not even getting into the ways that african art and art from the continent and the global south aren't even considered classics even though they predate this type of art so this whole bias and this whole critique, it, it's endless. These cave paintings are so performative. It's like my new favorite quote of all time. Like, <laughs> I love that so much. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I'm really mad that that couldn't have made it into our book. I know. <laughs> um, that yeah, that, that's so good. But I could imagine someone saying that. Like, imagine a cave painting happens and it's like, oh, man. Like, you're just drawing the mammoth run. We actually did it. Like, you're so performative. You didn't even experience that, bro. What are you talking about? Oh, my God. And it's like, but now we know that it happened because of this artist. You know, like, we can't knock people for showing up for liberation in the ways that they can, which means honoring artists, which means honoring speakers, which means honoring folks who can do the grassroots work, but also folks who can report on it and cover it. Because, for example, the coup d'etat in Chile and Los Desaparecidos, the people who were disappeared during Pinochet's regime, we might not have had as much information about it if it were not for Swedish and German journalists who were covering this because they had just experienced fascism not a decade or two mm-hmm. before. So it's all of the things. It's not putting one on a pedestal above the other but kind of all respecting the place that they show up in the world. Totally. Have you gotten into or explored the world of TikTok yet? You know, so TikTok's an interesting one because on the one hand, so I've I've used to consult in tech and there are some validity around the like security concerns people have. On the other hand, some of it is xenophobic hogwash. So there's that. But I really love seeing kind of it being reposted 
Well, at first I was like, I refuse to learn a new form of technology, which is literally the critique of people I was just saying. I was like, I'm too old for this, which is how everyone feels. But then I'm looking at it and I see folks educating people about mm-hmm. like, okay, if the ER sends you home, make sure to you know go back on that bill because this is how they bill you. I can tell you this because I used to be a nurse. Or are people saying things like, you know, I saw somebody make fondant, you know, black power fists and put them in their cappuccino and it was highly aesthetic and it was like <laughs> maybe a little performative, but also very artistic and cool. But TikTok is fascinating because, again, it's just yet another form of people using technology to show up. But then you have the fact that it's being suppressed by the platform. It's really interesting. Yeah. So I've recently gone pretty deep into TikTok and it is so like when I first started I didn't like it at all because I it, it takes a while for the algorithm to like learn what you're into so when I first started I was like I don't need to watch any more teenagers like doing dance routines like good for them but like I don't care but then after once I kind of ended up on you know like uh, queer TikTok and revolutionary TikTok and like these these other areas and like the algorithm started to learn what I was interested in it is really a very fast paced and like really valuable platform in the ways that like just like you said like people are able to share very niche information very very fast there was one I just saw the other day and there's this this southern cowboy like he's a full-on cowboy like that's his thing and he's like a cowboy for the revolution like he's you know trying to to spread information and he like just did a quick tiktok he's like i think he lives in like texas or i couldn't remember exactly where but he was like there's this tiny little town and he like said the name of the town and he's like he's like if you are queer or a person of color do not stop in that town for gas like it's run by white supremacists like there you know there are plenty of like safe places around but do not stop there and it blew up and it was just like sharing this very important little piece of information that someone might be traveling through the state could use and to help protect themselves and like it's just like stuff like that from all over the world is just like running through TikTok all the time and at such a high speed I feel like it's turned into a really valuable tool and then also now there's all this stuff about like the Trump administration like wanting to ban TikTok which is makes me convenient what is he mad about his rally (laughs) is he acting out because of that probably (laughs) yeah i really have to think it's convenient like anytime there's a government force trying to say this is bad instead of trying to be like how can we make it safer for young people especially that concerns me especially because it's just now that it's becoming not just now but more recently it's been viewed as kind of a social justice vehicle but before when it was you know Mm -hmm. musically and then musically got acquired by tiktok which is a chinese-owned company now it's a security risk instead of realizing, okay, well, if you were really concerned with protecting young people, then you would have been all over this ahead of time, mm-hmm. not just because it poses a threat yeah. to the status quo. But one TikToker that I'm really obsessed with, and I'm just, you know, all over it, I hope that y'all can have her on the podcast. She goes by Rinstar. I love Rinstar! <laughs> our, our wife. Yeah. And then on Instagram at the real Rinstar. So I don't have TikTok, so I don't follow her on there. Yes. But she has this song, and I will do my best to copy it. Black neighborhoods are over-policed, so of course they have higher rates of crime. And white neighborhoods are under-policed, so of course they have lower rates of crime. And white perpetrators are undercharged, so... What? I think... Oh, man, I can't remember the rest. But I hope y'all can put the clip in. You sent me that one, Core. I think I know it's... um, And all of these stupid stats yeah. you keep using are operating on a small sample size. So shut up. 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 <laughs> Yep, you 1000% sent me that, Corey. <laughs> yeah, I just messaged her that I was talking about her on the podcast. 
But she's amazing because she explains things like, what is an ampersand? If you smarticle particles want to know what an ampersand is, you know, it's just using this type of thing. And like, that's such a great way to remember the whole like black on black crime statistic and a way to refute that. And then also seeing people who are being really brave. Like I saw a TikTok of this little white girl who's like a teen who was calling her dad's boss to say, my dad is a racist and I think you should fire him. And it's like, wow. Yeah. That's badass. <laughs> That's bold. You know, I told my mom about that. And my mom was like, wait, she might have trouble getting groceries because she decided to report her dad for being racist. And I was like, yeah, but also there's unemployment. Like, it's just so fascinating to see how people are sharing. And there's, of course, you know, you have folks like my younger cousins who are like, you know, it's just hype. It's not real, whatever, whatever. And then you have other folks like my niece who really feel that this is a way for her to connect with her classmates and do challenges and do dances in a recreational way that can't Mm -hmm. be done otherwise because of the pandemic. So it's really interesting to see the evolution of this. But, you know, I do have to acknowledge my bias at first because I was like, oh, this is new. Boo. You know, but (laughs) totally, totally. It's human nature. Yeah. Learning new technology. There's always a moment of like, oh, I have to learn this now. (laughs) Like, (laughs) It's always a challenge. I still haven't. I've been so lazy. I've really just relied on Corey sending me the good videos and I just wait for her to send me things. And that's the only way I can invest it. Whenever I open the app, I get so stressed out because it automatically just starts playing something. And I'm like, no. At full volume. Like, what the heck is yes. that? I'm like, nah, not here for that. So I just wait till Corey sends me good videos and then I know I'm going to like whatever I open. So uh, find you a friend like Corey and then you can enjoy TikTok <laughs> if you're 27. I'll be everyone's TikTok friend. I'll just send out math TikToks. <laughs> TikTok newsletters for older people. <laughs> there actually might be a market for that. I love that. I think I think you should actually patent that immediately. Yeah, that's a pretty good idea. <laughs> we have until this episode comes out. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. So let's see what. So we've talked a lot about both using using history, using social media, kind of integrating all of these things. And obviously, you know, just a very important element of the work that you do, as you've described, is telling full stories in an accessible way, because as we know, like our education system has kind of woefully underprepared us and <laughs> failed us in every way. Oh. I was going to say woefully too. I was going to say woefully inadequate. (laughs) I like, yeah, for real. Like, in your opinion, like, what are some ways that people that exist in the space of the historian or the art historian or identify as one? Because I agree with what you said at the beginning too. Like, you don't have to have an advanced degree to do history. Like, it's not necessary at all. But anyone who wants to do work in that space, just what are some of your thoughts and opinions on how we can collectively just do a much better job of creating a vaster, richer, truer record of history. The first thing I always say kind of around this question is that like Herodotus didn't have a degree. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Like Suetonius didn't have a degree and Suetonius lied a fucking lot. So I think that we're doing better on fact checking. You know, like we have a lot more mechanisms in place, but there's such an industry around degrees. And, you know, like I feel very much confident in my access to 
archives and my access to literature and being able to do like firsthand narratives and then compare them with like, you know, facts from, you know, around lynching, for example, like a lot of that is oral record. And then you have the Equal Justice Initiative that's recording it. So really, for folks who, you know, are lay historians or public historians, as I call myself, really be confident in the work you're doing. Mm -hmm. As far as folks who are in academia, don't just work with folks who are also in academia mm-hmm. because, you know, that's a, that's a limited sample size. And just like Rin Starr said, you know, if you're operating a small sample size, it's bullshit. <laughs> and we know that as historians, if you're only going based on a couple sources, you're going to have bias because you have something mm-hmm. called institutional bias. So, you know, if you all were taught by the same art history professor, you're all going to then kind of operate in the same way that art history professor does, which can be sometimes an issue, especially if things like white supremacist bias or, you know, patriarchal or ableist bias start to infiltrate mm-hmm. what's supposed to be an objective lesson. So that's another thing is not to lull yourself into believing that anything you're learning is objective. There's a reason why certain things were commissioned in a certain way. The massive patrons of the, you know, Italian Renaissance, they wanted their, you know, Jesus to look like their son, you know, like mm-hmm. there, there's all these things that start to factor in. And so it's having that critical thinking lens. And it seems so obvious, but so often it lapses, you know. So yeah, the reason why we got connected was that meme I posted about looting. And I had said, looting is what filled nearly every prestigious history museum in the Western world. Are y'all anti-looting now? Are y'all returning artifacts? And it's so funny because that has inspired quite a few collectors to reach out to me, offering to sell me their artifacts. And my assistant, Ren is a forensic anthropologist, but also anti-colonization scholar. And they've been sending, you know, just vicious emails back to these collectors talking about how dare you sell stolen goods? How dare you attempt to gain from the plunder of other cultures that should be repatriated? And so I think that's another thing is as you have the benefit, whether you're in academia or not, to possess and look over and pour over, you know, archival materials, really consider the fact, you know, who does this belong to and whose story are you able to be the shepherd of, but then also being very upfront about yourself and how you are and may not be, but generally are benefiting from a legacy of colonization. Because there's a reason that so many families have to sell the letters of their famous relatives because of capitalism, but I'm sure that they would like to be able to possess them as well. Definitely. Yeah. The repatriation issue is is something that it came up for us in grad school, I remember, in, in some of our um, seminars. And it's something I know we want to talk about more on the, the show and discuss further. But like, it's just interesting because from my perspective, anyways, whenever these like conversations about repatriation would come up, it still felt like the side that uh, was defending the housing of colonized artifacts was always like the dominant side in the conversation. And it always seemed like such a simple of thing. Like it always seemed like, I was like, no, just yeah. give them back. Like and just give, give this shit back, dude. Like, yeah, it's not that complicated, but we'd have like these long conversations because a lot of the information people were bringing in in terms of, you know, resources that were written from the side of the law and things were always resources that kind of sided with these, you know, museums housing all these artifacts and stuff and it's like colonialism yeah just straight colonialism all over the place (laughs) but it cracks me up because how many of these museums have prosecuted people who are generally 
the folks who don't benefit from the art space. How many of these folks have prosecuted people and then, you know, invested millions of dollars into state of the art protection systems so that their shit doesn't get stolen? It's like, clearly they know what it's like, but they can't get over, you know, they can't get out of their own white supremacist buttholes and realize, oh, hey, well, maybe, you know, the fact that Egypt has had a declining tourism industry for years is partially because all of the artifacts that they would have on display are in the British museums or in the German museums, etc. And, you know, I had a meeting with one of the culture folks from the Angela Merkel administration in Germany. And unbeknownst to me, this is the same person who had like sobbed when she was asked to apologize on behalf of the German government for stealing these skulls of people in you know in parts of Africa under the colonization and she stormed out of the room and I really wish I had known that when I met her because I would have also asked her for that apology but you know it's just so frustrating because you know on the one hand these people will be bastions of well look at how amazing we are look at how scholarly we are but then when it's like hey do you mind being accountable for all the harms you've done they're like how dare you ask me to you know acknowledge the ways that I've benefited from a system of harm it's ridiculous it's so duplicitous and it's so hypocritical and that's what I think can be best called out like I had a conversation with a young girl who is getting her master's in I think fine arts and she was like well I want to switch to study you know like art in the global south and i was like okay or you could just decolonize the work that you're already doing and not take up spots in degree programs that you don't really care about yeah <laughs> yes <laughs> it is i think that's that's one thing that like at my core i just really struggle with is like being in this space of art history of course i love art i love art i love it it's i love all art i just it's it's wonderful but i do not in any way understand the impetus that a lot of people when it comes to these kinds of issues this idea that I guess like the value of an artifact or a piece of art or like taking the oh what sort I'm looking for the mystique's not really the right word but the the whole allure allure there we go (laughs) i I was like give me a little bit more and i'll help you out here i just need something the whole allure around this artwork or this piece of architecture or this artifact and like making that more valuable than like actual living human beings like i don't get it i will not like no like i Mm -hmm. destroy it all if if it means like making sure people are taken care of like i don't care a thousand percent one of my little cousins posted something that was like hey remember when notre dame burned down and we raised like millions of dollars in like 20 minutes like where is that when yeah like looking at yemen like there are so many situations where meanwhile that the Yemen famine was happening at that same time. Yeah, disgusting. Yeah, And people were speaking up about it. And it's so frustrating because those same folks were like, oh, well, clearly you're just trying to attack Christianity and trying to attack all of France. And it's like, um, even if that was the case, let's talk about how all of France and how Christian colonization created the conditions that resulted in these types of famines. You know, like it's it's a both and conversation. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. It's this yeah. really interesting thing where, you know, like the Black Panther Party in their magazine, like they spoke about how racists, you know, don't care about art and how so much art has been defaced and how, you know, like entire cities were mm-hmm. leveled in order to build these like hideous colonial monuments. Mm-hmm. And so it's funny because that's what I think is most frustrating to me is that there's such a lack of reflection upon people whose primary focus as historians, art historians, you know, architectural historians, etc., fail to reflect upon the fact that some of the sites that they hold most near and dear to their their hearts 
have done the same thing. And then they're frustrated that someone else might not even be doing it, but it's just this idea that there is. So I think too, there's this kind of infantilization of other cultures, which comes from a place of white supremacy and colonization (laughs) itself that considers, oh no, well, they're going to destroy everything and turn it into what they want. And it's like, "Mm, we're not. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) That That was what I was thinking when Corey was talking about class debates around reparations of artifacts. And that to me was an argument that always made me so frustrated is like, oh, they can't take care of it. Yeah, they wouldn't know what to do. And it's like, excuse me. That would be something that people would always pull out. They can't handle the responsibility of the thing that they themselves made. The thing that wouldn't even exist without them. A full excuse me, because these are the same folks who will like exalt paintings that were created with the crushed up mummy bodies in Mummy Brown, it's like, okay, let's talk about not knowing how to take care of it. How about all of the architecture, all of the artifacts that are fully destroyed today that we can't even see because some idiot with like, you know, extra money from his parents' inheritance, which also came from enslavement, decided to go down to Egypt, hire a bunch of like laborers, ignore the local government, ignore the local historians, and exhume these things and like completely destroy them and put them in his basement so that he could, you know, party with his friends and snort lines of Mummy Brown. For during a party like that fully happened Ugh. and it's still so many of those artifacts still exist in these different english estates but those are the same people who are like well they wouldn't know what to do with it and it's like well it was doing a lot better than before you came exactly <laughs> and this whole perception that like you know as a black woman i've been told so often that like oh well you're lucky that you know slavery happened because you would be in africa and it's like what the actual hell? I've actually been told that by a teacher, Mr. Nadelborg, really? in, in San Marino Middle School. Love dropping names. Oh my god. My, my jaw is like down far. That's <sighs> But he told me this. But the thing is, if slavery had not happened, if the plunder and theft of resources had not happened, we wouldn't have these, you know, resource poor areas or honestly resource rich areas with no infrastructure because Mm -hmm. they were denied the ability to create infrastructure systematically through systems of enslavement. And I didn't have the words to be able to articulate that. So I was just like, well, we would have been fine. Like, I remember learning about things like sharecropping and he was saying it was a great thing. And I was like, well, if these people had to share the land that they had for centuries tilled and had no money from it that sounds pretty fucked up to me but he was so adamant about putting me in my place that he would say something like that and people always go back to those types of things but it's all from a place of white supremacy it's all from a place Mm -hmm. and an understanding that whiteness is better and if you operate from that understanding you're going to make zero sense because that is a hateful ideology that isn't based in truth at all even though For centuries, there has been pseudoscience engineered to make it seem as though it was valid. Yeah, completely. Like, in general, just the attachment to hierarchy is like... It's like if you're operating fundamentally under a mentality, a hierarchy of like certain people are better or worse than other people. Yeah, nothing about your worldview is going to align with someone who doesn't believe that, you know, it's like this conception of like, once you establish that main idea of like, this like false idea of someone being better than someone else, then it's just, it's almost like you're having two different arguments. You're operating under two different worldviews. A good example of this is when a paleontologist exhumes bones, rearranges them in the wrong 
way and then says, look at this creature. Look at this Saurus. You know, this dinosaur did this things and this things and this things and these talons were used. And it's like, meanwhile, the things that you thought were teeth were actually their claws and you're all totally (laughs) fucking wrong to begin with. And now you've written so many textbooks based on this incorrect premise that we won't actually learn anything new. Or in another case, like that image we see of the blobby fish, that's not what blobfish actually look like. That's what happens when they get depressurized super quickly. Yes! Yes! Oh my god, I'm so glad you brought this up. I said that, I'm not even joking, I said that to Natalie the other day, the blobfish thing. We had a whole conversation about the blobfish and how he's been done dirty in the media. (laughs) And it's so true. And like the last thing I'll say about this too is that you have like the Maori people and other Pacific Islander cultures, but because of this certain type of photography, there's this idea that the tribal tattooing is a new phenomenon because the colonizers who came to photograph their work didn't have lenses or a system of photography that could capture that artwork. So, you know, the people who have historically wrote these things have taught us about ourselves are doing it in a way that benefits them. They're teaching us about a sliver of our history, not even being able to look at the whole context and then telling us we're less than because of their failings. Mm -hmm. It it pisses me off. And it's also part of the reason why I'm really reluctant to go into academia because so much of the work that I do isn't in the academy. I don't feel like writing my own curriculum and then paying an institution money to get a degree that I could be operating on the premise of regardless. Mm -hmm. Amen. Yes. Amen. Amen. That's, I mean... (laughs) That's pretty much exactly where we are. Like, uh, none of us are really in the academic world anymore, and, and we're pretty happy to be outside of it. You know, there's still. Especially lately. Especially lately. Especially lately. And yeah, because it's the entire system is colonial and hierarchical, and it just is like, you know, the theory's great. I love the theory of a place where everyone goes to learn. Like, that's beautiful, but that's not what actually. We made the best of it, too. Our situation, our experience, I feel like, was on the better side compared to others for us four. We did. We had a good experience. And at the same time, I have a million critiques. Like there were, I have so many things that like I was not happy with. So it's like, yeah, I am all for... Especially like we live in we live in the internet age. We live in the age of information. Like you can we can everyone can do this work. Like you don't need to exist within the walls of an academic institution to create valuable intellectual work. And I almost think sometimes being outside of it gives you a more real perspective, a perspective that, you know, reminds you that it's not about just trading, like going back and forth on like how smart you are with like other academics. It's about, (laughs) it's about like sharing information with people, all people all over the place. And like, that's like the beauty of it. And so I am a huge, huge proponent of this. Like, let's, let's create more academic resources that aren't actually academic. (laughs) Yeah, because I think it's a both and thing, you know, like, for example, intersectionality coming from Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw from a legal essay that specifically focused on black women and the ways that we are denied access to spaces that benefit black men and white women. Like that's super important to discuss. And at the same time, it's also important to make that accessible to multiple folks. So I think like whenever I get on my diatribes about like academia, then you have academics who are like, well, I'm never going to provide you an interview for your next book because you hate us. And it's like, okay, that's pretty. And then you're going to be mad that I didn't include your research. But 
it's also to just really emphasize the fact that it's not so much like I'm not against the folks who participate in this system. I'm upset with the folks who like allow it to be harmful. But also, we have to be able to critique systems, you know, like we can benefit from Suetonius, but we also should acknowledge the fact that he lied, you know, like we have to do all the things, but really uplift folks who are working to create changes in those institutions. Because the thing is, like, you know, I went and I got a four year degree. And that imbues me with a certain level of like respectability within the system that we inhabit. However, that doesn't make me feel like, oh, you know, somebody who feels that, you know, a four-year degree is BS is invalid. Like, no, that's totally valid. Mm -hmm. I participated in this system. Here's what it did for me. Here's how I tried to change the system. You know, I feel like LSU is very different after I graduated from it. But I think that you know, just kind of as folks listen to it, I would encourage them to not get defensive as we talk about these things and the duplicitous natures and the way that capitalism infiltrates, but to really just hear it out and stay confident in what they do. But if you find yourself in a position where you're unable to reconcile these critiques with why you're participating, that's the issue. Definitely. Yes. Yeah. Because it's not like, like, obviously, I spent a ton of time in academia from I was an undergrad for five years, and then I did my master's degree. And I value those years and that time and everything I learned like so much and I'm so grateful to have had the opportunities I've had and at the exact same time I can like witness and recognize that harm was done in that time too you know I can recognize like different things I saw about that system that just didn't work for for human beings for like creating healthy human beings and like things that were just like yeah not fair not just and different practices that you know I like to just critique the culture of academia in terms of how I I think it just makes a lot of people sick because it like it overworks you for no money and we can all recognize these things and like yeah try and make something better and still have love for what we gain from being in those institutions it's not an either or thing and I think that idea is exactly it's so important and it stretches out to any institution I mean even the United States of America like I am from Mm -hmm. the United States like I can love the United States and pretty much like hate the United States at the same time like for lack of better word like I can do you can do both how about some nuance people like yeah You can love the things that are worth loving and hate the things that are worth hating. And you can do both of those things at the same exact time and there's nothing wrong with it. (laughs) That brings me to the podcast that I have called America Did What? Yeah. And, you know, part of the benefit of having my like ultra white white friend named Kate Robards, who's also, you know, very intelligent. She has a master's in fine arts, actually. And she just is an absolute genius of comedy and wit and writing. And she's also my, you know, co-facilitator in terms of like anti-racism work and intersection work but having her on the podcast is so great because if it was just me a black muslim woman talking about america and its failings then i'm going to be dealing with trolls but because kate is there with me she like shields me from folks who might not otherwise listen who feel like she's objective because she's archetypally american even though our families are actually interrelated yeah oh yeah it's it's just so (laughs) i mean like it sucks that that even has to be a thing that there is yeah this this idea like personally, like I'm a white girl from Iowa. So I am like Midwest, you know, born and bred kind of a thing. And I think sometimes people get really surprised at how like 
radical I am in my politics and how like leftist I am and how to some people, I don't know. I definitely know that there have been people that like I went to high school with and stuff that think I'm like anti-American, that think I'm like like fundamentally anti-America. And it's, I mean, I think there was a tweet I saw recently. I can't remember who it was, but it, it was just something about like, if you actually like love something or love where you're from, like wouldn't critiquing it and trying to make it a better place, like isn't that an expression of love? Especially because like Thomas Jefferson said shit like that and he was terrible. But like yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he said stuff like that, you know, like, you know, you need riots every now and then and like protests to make things perfect. And that's what our country was, you know, built on. Of course, it was from a white supremacist, patriarchal, ableist, cis, mm-hmm. you know, heterophobic mm-hmm. lens. However, <laughs> that also applies to improving it. You you know, like so many people who are the first ones to say, hey, America is great for everybody. Those folks, their ancestors couldn't vote. Yep. Their ancestors didn't own land. Like, come on, y'all. Like we could all, you know, unite to make this shit better. But instead, people are so committed to posturing. And so for me, because I'm somebody who, especially, you know, since I converted to Islam, I'm viewed as somebody who's like inherently anti-American. I might as well race <laughs> in hell because people expect it. <laughs> and so... It's fun because so often, like, people are like, well, I bet you have something to say about it. And I was like, I fucking do. Actually, thank you for the floor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you for the introduction. <laughs> I do. I have a few things to say. I love that. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, we need more of that energy. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Also, speaking of just energy, I remember I saw a post you did, like, introducing yourself. And I'm a huge astrology nerd. And I was so excited that you're a Scorpio because I'm a Scorpio. And I love that, like, oh, shit. I- oh Oh, shit. (laughs) I just that like fierce, transformative Scorpio energy is just like I live for it. I love it so much. It's like I feel like that's almost like kind of a Scorpio motto too. like like you probably got something to say. Yeah, I fucking do. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and then I have four placements of Scorpio in my house. Yeah. So I'm like and then my birthday is Halloween, (gasps) like Blair Witch. Oh, my my gosh. I have like these green eyes that are very intense. Like I've just, you know, I'm from L.A. I know what it's like to get typecast I'm cool with it you know so like growing up people would be like haha the Blair Witch and I'd be like yeah I'll curse you (laughs) lean in (laughs) you know like I just roll with it because people are gonna try to bully you and they're gonna try to and this is actually part of my diversity and inclusion discussions is you know as marginalized folks whether you're like you know a woman you come from like different backgrounds etc like you already know what people are going to say about you. You know, if your name is Rocky, people are going to ask you how the fight went or how's bowling. That's just the thing, you know. So as, you know, a black Muslim woman, people are going to say, wow, your English is so good. I can come up all day with comebacks for that moment because I know it will happen again. And so I really empower people Mm -hmm. to use and and actually Arlen Hamilton talks about this in her book. It's about damn time. Another great recommendation. That's two now. I would make a great professor, man. I'm always giving the book recommendations. There will be a pop quiz. (laughs) But Arlen Hamilton talks about how you need to be yourself so that other people can find you. And I think that's huge. And then it's also about kind of not weaponizing because that's strong language, but I kind of mean weaponizing your identities in a way that benefits benefits you and disrupts the status quo. Because if people perceive me as a Muslim woman, as somebody who should be quiet, then when I speak up, then people are ready to listen because they think that I'm, you know, circumventing this thing. And it's a way that you can not glean privilege, because I think that is, you know, a misnomer, but you can use people's misconceptions of you and misunder and underestimations of you to your advantage. Like, you know, you show up in a room, somebody thinks you're an intern and surprise, you're the manager. 
Yes, yes, definitely. This has been such a great conversation. Is there anything else that you'd like to discuss or share with the Art History Babes listeners out there? I definitely want to come back on this podcast because this is dope. (laughs) Yes! Yes. So folks who are listening, I think that, you know, like find something that you get passionate about, like think about that as you listen to this conversation. I know that I get so justifiably like, you know, lit up about this stuff because it has so many consequences. And it's hard to listen to something that challenges your worldview and not have a reaction Mm -hmm. to it. So interrogate those reactions. That's an academic thing, you know, like really like confront those reactions you have and start asking, well, how am I hearing this? And why am I hearing it this way? As you start to learn more, because that's the exciting thing with this whole moment is that it's not about, oh, man, like everything I learned in school is different now. It's like, no, it's always been that way. Like when folks say, you know, Woodrow Wilson was a product of his time. No, Woodrow Wilson was a head ass racist, you know, like his parents leased slaves from their church. He was a bad person. Black folks knew it was bad back then. It was just a matter of them not being granted humanity or being listened to. So that's how we can have a richer experience, not only of history, but the present understanding the fact that not every player in the historical game is written about. There are so many people who are unspoken, who are unheard. And so We are able to honor those folks now. So get excited about this whole range of untapped potential of untapped stories and get excited about telling those and learning about them because it will just enrich and enliven the work that you do. I promise. So well said. Yeah, that's such a great note to end on. Can you come end all of our podcasts? (laughs) (laughs) That was really nice. It's funny because I actually was at a conference before Corona times. I was at a conference and they were like, Blair, can you? do the conclusion and I was like for sure (laughs) I got this like it's funny because growing up in school I struggled so much with writing conclusions in my essays I would always leave them off and now I'm like it's my forte so that's weird no you really are good at I'm a bad closer so I respect the good closers immensely we'll just have a a little moment of inspiration by Blair at the end end of episodes This was so fun, and I feel like we could talk about so much more. So I would love, love, love to have you on again about like any number of topics we could possibly discuss whenever, if ever you're interested. Thank you so, so much for being here and for just sharing your time and energy with us. Anytime. Thanks so much. And thanks to everyone who is excited about history because, you know, it's rare and it's fun. Agreed. All right. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. We'll catch you next time. Toodaloo. Bye. Like I talked about, I think the reason why that we got connected was the meme that I had said about looting. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And actually, let me pull it up so I don't paraphrase myself. (laughs) (laughs) One second. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M 
Noom.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.